So before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that tickets for Fintech Insider After Dark 5 on April the 11th are now live. Uh, this time, though, we'll be holding our live show in both London and San Francisco on the same night. Go to afterdark.11fs.com to claim your tickets now. Be sure to snap them up quick as they always sell out fast. From 11FS, I'm Laura Watkins and this is Fintech Insider News. Uh, Simon Taylor reminded me that this is the Easter episode, so we hope you had an excellent Easter weekend and are enjoying Bank Holiday Monday by the time you're listening to this. Today we bring you Deutsche Bank claims the death of bank accounts could be only 15 years away, TSB launched their marketplace and we speak to Richard Davies to find out more, and Amex buys cake and Square Cash encourages you to buy coffee. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Allgate. I'm Laura Watkins and I'm joined by 11FS CEO and my co-host David Breer. How are you doing today, David? That was an awfully formal intro. Like uh, That's the first time I think I've been called a title for quite some time, which is uh, which is interesting. But yeah, I'm really good. Like Apart from it being super shitty weather in London all week, then uh, the work side of it has been good. So. Awesome. Well, I just got back from Poland where snow very nearly grounded the plane. So. All right, you win. Fine. <laughs> Yeah, this is a one-upsmanship game, apparently. And I'm winning. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough about us. So let's introduce our guest. So joining us today, we have Jeff Tyson, making his first podcast appearance as a fully-fledged member of the 11FS team. Yay! Welcome Ooh. back to the show, Jeff. Uh, next up, we've got Ed Maslavekis, otherwise known as Ed from Bud, so co-founder <laughs> of Bud. Welcome back, Ed. Hi there. And making her fintech insider return for the first time since all the way back in 2016, Monzo's head of operations, Leah Templeman. Welcome back. Thanks very much. Excited to be here. Was that 2016 when we did that? That is a long time ago. Stuff has happened since then. The very you... end. It was December. Was it? Uh, okay. <laughs> it sounds longer if we say 2016. It does, yeah. <laughs> Welcome back. Cool. So let's get started with this week's news. Um, all the stories we talk about today are from our 11FS and Fintech Insider community, fintechinsidernews.com. Uh, check it out for all the latest industry news and sign up to get involved and discuss the stories with everyone on the show and in the community. So that's fintechinsidernews.com. Starting off, our first story um, it concerns Deutsche Bank sounding the death to bank accounts uh, speech. So this is a story from Business Insider. Bank accounts could disappear within 15 years, according to Deutsche Bank's most senior execs. David, any strong thoughts on this one? It's quite interesting. Bank says they might not exist in 15 years. It's interesting. I wonder what it is that Deutsche Bank are going to think that they would be doing after that. Although I guess, Ed, this sort of plays well and truly into your game, right? I think the caveat is bank accounts. Although I think, you know, on the Monzo story, this belief that bank accounts have gone missing before anyway. So that's been happening for a long time. Um, you know, I suppose the question is, what is a bank account and what purpose does it serve? Again, it's, it's you know, all the, the ancillary services around bank accounts and, and things that the experiences that we work on day to day and that sort of people around the table work on day to day, the bank account doesn't, isn't going to look and feel like the bank account in the future. And, and I suppose that's kind of half of, that's not the point he's making. He's making a point about cryptocurrencies and blockchain, um, which is uh, always an interesting prediction, um, but it's good to be innovative in the news. It was interesting, wasn't it? It was like a since a recent trip to China, which had opened my eyes to the fact that retail banking sector is rife for disruption. 
No shit, dude. Yeah, I feel like, like it's we, a bit late to the party yeah, on that like, one. Uh, but um, it, it is an interesting trend, though, I guess, that we're seeing that. It used to be like Silicon Valley and kind of like getting high on Google and Facebook. But, you know, everybody's getting really giddy about what's happening with, uh, you know, Alipay and Tencent now. And, you know, the, the sort of platformification of everything that's going off in uh, uh, Asia more broadly, not just uh, not just in China. Then, you know, really, it's it's amazing that, A, this is still news to people. Um, but very sort of broad assertion by, um, you know, the, the exec at Deutsche Bank to say 15 years from now, it will be such disruption in, in the Western world. I think he's probably right. I mean, to build on what, what Ed just said, effectively, your current account is just a ledger. So can a ledger be, or can a current account be replaced by blockchain? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, so I, I, I do think that you know, the, the current account itself will definitely change. What's, what's, what's interesting as well is, I mean, yes, the point about China is interesting, but, Generally, I'm not a big fan of bank CEOs trying to predict the future, especially if it's in yeah. If they're talking about 15 to 20 years from now, uh, if you look at the mess that some of the banks are in, I think we can all agree that bank CEOs are probably not the best ones at predicting what's going to happen in 15 to 20 years from now. Yeah, but Jeff, these are new bank CEOs. Uh, <laughs> this, uh, this time, this time it'll be different. <laughs> I think it very much depends on the CEO, doesn't it? But um, Leah, I guess you guys have got a, a real sort of interesting point in this game. You guys are sort of uh, trying to build the uh, next generation of everything that's happening in banking yeah I, th- I think it's a strong statement saying they're going to disappear i definitely agree with the fact they're going to change i don't think cryptocurrency is something that necessarily needs to be totally separate from the concept of a bank account and so for me it's not one or the other um we're obviously playing heavily to a marketplace account and that's the direction we're going in at the moment um but who's to say what it will be in 15 years time i certainly don't know i, I kind of think that's what he must be referring to to a certain degree in this though because actually if you've been to China and you've seen you know everything that's happening with WeChat and like say the kind of Alipay integrating into like literally everything when you're out there then you know the sort of that platform view which in any other guise is is essentially a, a marketplace view of, of the world isn't it that you know the people who control the, the largest communities are the ones who've got best access to the customers then that's really where we sort of see most of these things going right yeah for sure I think it's so interesting that because for Monzo it's so crucial that it is still seen as a bank account like that's one of the core selling points of of Monzo we spend a lot of time and a lot of effort getting a banking license because we think that's what's going to make the difference Um, so I find it interesting that he's said that part is not going to be there anymore and won't matter because it's definitely something that we feel differently on it'd be interesting to see what like Joe Public on the street would be like, so I don't need my Deutsche Bank account anymore, do yeah. I not? You know, what's so uh, what's next? And, you know, cryptocurrency and like you say, blockchain to a certain degree is reasonably witchcraft to like general yeah, I public. Think you're so- gonna convince like, you know, our parents or whatever to that 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 is the thing you know, i was reasonably like, trying hard not to bring up my mom at that's that fine point, i brought up mine instead thanks, like, yeah. <laughs> um yeah i would not be able to convince my mom that you know kind of blockchain is the way forward and yeah she doesn't need her bank account anymore but uh, but i guess that's the same sort of stance that we've said on open banking right if i try and explain to like a uh, mm. another human being not my mom bringing up my mom again then what open banking is like she's gonna like glaze over and not care but it's like you say it's the use case if you can say actually you can consolidate all of your things into a single thing brilliant that sounds like one less app or you know um a kind of a less worry about doing some mental maths across all of these things that you'll have to do so uh makes total sense cool all right so we're continuing with the going digital theme and the next story um concerns citibank uh story in the wall street journal submitted to fintech inside news by nigel walsh 
which concerns Citigroup to become a nationwide bank again, but only in a digital form. Um, it says it will use an expanded mobile app to fully serve new customers. Um, and bank execs say that three years of investing in digital tools has laid a foundation for the rollout. Uh, and new services will include virtually instant account opening and so-called aggregator features. Three years and one mobile app. I can see your facial expression already, David. Do you want to take the lead on this? I don't quite know what this means, if I'm honest with you. But I guess hot off the heels of Lloyd's coming out and saying they're spending a billion pounds a year to kind of move digital transformation yeah, stuff really forward. Yeah, reminded me of that story. Yeah, it's kind of like if actually after three years you guys have just got an app, then I'm not sure really. You know, there's a there's a bunch of stuff in this where it's like how much of this stuff is just hygiene now in terms of the things that people just expect to happen. You know. Um, I know we very often go back to that uh, Chris Rock kind of, uh, you know, stand up thing of like people trying to take credit for shit they just should be doing. And a mobile app for right now is just hygiene factor for everybody who's out there in the market. So uh, similar to the, the Lloyd's thing, I was like, how bad a problem did they have that three years of investing in infrastructure was what was required to build an app? I think it's the so what factor again. I think all these things are table stakes. It's what you do next that's going to be interesting. Again, you know, they have the things like aggregators and sort of actually what they're trying to do, I think here is start to clean up their data and actually use it to do something interesting. It, it, again, it's the making some sort of connected journey in, into something interesting and, and what's next. I mean, yeah, again, I think actually these two stories are of a similar vein. Big Bank says, yeah, digital's a thing. They, they have to come up with a better marketing slogan now, because I think light bricks, heavy clicks isn't really going to do it for me. <laughs> heavy clicks makes the whole process sound quite cumbersome, but actually they're trying to make digital the way forward. And like that slogan kind of implies the opposite. It's like really knowing that somebody means it, though, if they like they really have to like click on that thing yeah, really hard. Right. It's like maybe it's like almost like a consent thing, you know. But um, no, I, I agree that the marketing needs to be worked on a little bit. I mean, to, to give the story a bit of a positive spin and to give City a bit of credit, I, I do think it's interesting to see that these big financial institutions are actively looking at what the future looks like for them. So yeah, I think, I mean, I haven't seen the app, but it looks like they do offer quite a few different products and services. So full suite of banking, credit card lending, investment tools, uh, virtual instant account opening, aggregated features. So it, there's quite a bit in there. And that in the US market as well, right? So the, you know, where Wells Fargo and Bank of America are kind of dominating from a, you know, a, a nationwide perspective, actually, if they can get to a point where they can offer all of that consistently, you know, it's it's essentially like, uh, you know, Monzo going, hey, we're going to do all of Europe right now. It's like quite a big regulatory framework, multiple things to kind of buy off in one go. Um, but um, yeah, super interesting to see how how customers really react to this stuff. You know? mm, and speaking of their customers, it sort of says that they've been closing a lot of branches and focusing on the, the customers with big balances, which obviously shows where they're, they're literally following the money. Um, so like, what, what do we think about that? <laughs> like, it's another interesting marketing potential yeah. there, isn't it? It's like, do you have lots of money? Well, come in. Yeah. Uh, and if, if you don't, not, bye. See you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not quite, I'm sure, the brand that they want to be sort of portraying to a certain degree, but um, that might be just somebody being a little bit loose-lipped with uh, uh, communications to a certain degree. Yeah. I would be quite interested to see their their customer acquisition strategy for new customers. Yeah, well, before they know whether they're a big balance holder or not. Yeah, that's a really good point. If they're focusing on the rich, but they don't know that you're rich until you join, like I think big yeah big balance holders can come into branch and that's it, right? That's yeah. maybe the the story. I th Bring um, a bag of money. Yeah, absolutely. the The interesting thing about aggregation, and so as as a company that is supplying aggregation, 
um, is actually that, and it sort of ties into the, obviously the previous article is around this platformification. And actually what we're seeing is that we've seen platformification happen in large tech, consumer technology. We've seen it happen in the Eastern regions and it been very successful. The only challenge is that it seems like the Western reaction to, to the platformification in finance is to do aggregation. And actually it's, again, not the reason why these platforms were successful in the first place. They were like, a, that is a, a tool and it's not, it's not the new story. It's the, what you did with it. And I think again, on the marketing with Jeff is, and, and, and open banking similarly is no one cares about open banking. It's about what people do with it. Um, and that's, that's what we're, we're starting to see. And once people start to be open to that conversation, um, then, then something interesting can happen. Completely agree. I like the idea of marketing with Jeff as well, if I'm honest with you. That sounds like a whole pit, uh, like a podcast spinoff that we can do that. And quite expensive though. Yeah, yeah, imagine. Yeah. Following on from marketing with Jeff uh, to TSB's new marketplace. So this is a story in Telegraph, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Empress. I hope I said that right. TSB launches lending marketplace for small businesses. So the press release for this came out literally yesterday. Launching in May, TSB is partnering with a company called Funding Options to deliver a business marketplace, uh, which will help apparently small businesses scan the market in minutes, open up the range of loans and type of finances on offer to them. Obviously, they can apply for a loan with TSB, but they can also shop around for options. Um, and it, uh, apparently, according to the press release, it's a solution that no other high street bank in the UK offers. Um, Does anyone have any strong thoughts about this one? You know, again, it's really interesting that people are starting to open up to not just servicing their own products, but actually offering other competitive products. And that's fascinating. Um, Back when I was at Aviva, we tried this with um, various different types of insurance, actually, and and kind of looking at whether even if it was, you know, a better priced product that you can actually give people the option of doing things. And that was back in... 2007 you know so it's it's fascinating that banking is kind of catching up with that side of things but also i guess this takes for a you know a big bank like tsb it takes a lot of kind of um emotional intelligence to be in a situation where you can start to show other products alongside your products not many other ones are really sort of taking that uh, that sort of um that leap really i think it's really fantastic i hope it's a sign of things to come in the consumer market as well um I think just greater choice for customers is great for everyone. Um, but it's really great to see some of the more established banks. I mean, I know TSB is uh, a new bank, <laughs> but I see some of the more established banks supporting it as well. I'm going to point out air quotes on a podcast, <laughs> not the best way of conveying irony, I guess, you know, but, um, but definitely I, I agree with you what you're saying. So there was, there was quite a bit of um, interesting discussion on our Fintech Insider News portal as well, uh, including Richard Davies, uh, who runs the commercial team at, at TSB. So, so knows what they're doing, which is pretty handy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that Richard says is my inspiration for this is Amazon offer third-party products alongside your own and through this make yourself have good products and have the data to know what good is in customers' eyes. There's nothing worse in my eyes than a customer coming to you and not being able to help them, whether this is your product or someone else's. I just love the vision there and I love how Richard is really trying to, posi- trying to position TSB as a true challenger bank. Yeah, I think that breeds so much trust, I'd say, with customers to a certain degree because actually if... You know, we've all experienced this. You go to a, a, it might be in any different walk of life, not just financial services, but all roads lead to like a product of some description from that company. So being in a situation where actually, you know, they're, they're giving that a product from somebody else might be more suitable to you than one of ours. 
that's a pretty awesome place to be, I, I guess. It's quite a good um, kind of upsell, but I guess it's quite brave of them as well to offer other people's products alongside themselves. Um, I think Richard was also quoted in the press release as saying they are trying to inject competition into the market to reduce the 90% stranglehold that the big banks have on small business banking. So I guess that's the kind of challenger aspect of TSB coming out, where they're sort of not afraid to try and disrupt things a little bit. Well, I think I think we've... Richard's backgrounds, obviously Oak North yeah. and, you know, Paul Pester, CEO of TSB was Virgin. You know, I think they've got kind of a bit of uh, heritage of, um, you know, being pro- quite provocative, I guess, which is... Yeah, we've I think, had Richard again, on the show a lot of times, like championing, that's really hard to say, <laughs> small businesses in the UK. So Russ Gallagher caught up with Richard Davies, actually, ahead of this press release going public, and uh, he gave his take on it. So let's hear from him now. Welcome to Fintech Insider News. I'm Ross Gallagher from 11FS, and today I'm speaking with Richard Davies, Commercial Banking Director at TSB, about their exciting new business banking marketplace initiative. Uh, Richard, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great, great to have you. Um, So, I mean, let's dive right in. Tell me about this business banking marketplace initiative. It sounds super cool and super exciting. Yeah, so listen, pretty excited about this myself. I think we're the first certainly of any major bank to do this in the UK. So we have partnered with Funding Options, which is uh, leading fintech in the lending marketplace space, to fully embed them onto our TSB website. Because I sort of feel that business customers have a really painful journey around getting finance currently. They have to kind of know if it's a fixed rate loan or invoice finance or whatever. So why not help them navigate sort of the best of sort of fintech and uh, independent lenders out there? So how much do you need? For what purpose? For how long? And a few other questions about your business will get you to a search of over 50 different fintech lenders out there and help you kind of find the finance you need. So this changes the game. Yeah, well, it's about choice, ultimately. Make things easy for customers and give them choice, which I know isn't really a traditional bank mindset to actually not just push your own products. But if you actually want to do good things for customers, then I think you've got to have choice and you've got to be prepared to have competition for your own products. I love this because this for me is it's one step closer to essentially what I would call open banking utopia. And it is, it is um, choice. Of course it is. It's also speed. Um, you know, I was having a conversation recently and they, someone was talking about this, this very topic. I mean, lending of course is a, is a massive frustration, particularly for smaller and, and, and medium sized businesses. Someone, the person I was, I was speaking with said it was up to six months to get a no and up to nine months to get a yes for a lot of these businesses. And um, so the speed element of course is important as well. Yeah. And customers, through this marketplace can sort of order by what they care most about, sort of likelihood of being lent to, speed, price. And for, for us, I mean, we don't currently have the fastest lending process out there. So this kind of, I guess, forces me to really improve our own products. So we're also partnering with another fintech, uh, not public yet who that is, to build a digital lending platform that will give that hopefully combination of quick decision and good price. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I guess um, in terms of 
sort of fintech innovation, I guess. Um, business banking has lagged, I suppose, traditionally behind the the retail space. You know, um, we are already starting to see in the in the sort of personal banking space um, some steps forward. Starling launching their marketplace. Um, you know, Monzo and Beta, but I guess um, there's something here from the, the business side of things that, you know, getting all of this essentially in one UI, um, it's, a, it's a brand new experience for them. Yeah, that's definitely the hype here. And I'd love to go beyond loans here as well, sort of get into a, a number of other services to help business owners. So yeah, I think there is some really amazing thinking going on now. I think open banking will be a catalyst for more of that, particularly when you get to business lending and that that incumbent data advantage that's been there, which things like open banking are helping to crack open. So yeah, I'd really hope that the sort of business banking segment, which has been really neglected for decades, is going to see a, a total transformation in the next three years. And I guess, you know, similar to what we're seeing in the personal space, grounded in financial wellness and, and helping these businesses get really more for, I get, I guess, bigger bang for their book. Yeah, I, I think that's super important. You've got to be transparent. You've got to be fair. You've got to give good choice. And we need to rebuild the trust that businesses have in being able to borrow. There was a survey from the British Business Bank recently that I think said 70% of businesses would rather forego growth than borrow from a bank. That is a really bad statistic. And it's kind of through things like this and trying to earn some trust of customers that I hope we can uh, change that statistic. It's a really bad statistic. And probably born out of pure frustration. And, and sadly, I mean, you've, you've seen the big five, various scandals around yeah. mistreatment of small businesses when they have borrowed. And I, I just think it's so important that we try and rebuild that confidence that it is okay to borrow when you can afford it. It's important you can afford it. But when you can afford it, to borrow to grow your business is a good thing. And only through that will you help the UK to thrive. I think what's evident is that, you know, definitely the narrative here is very customer first. And, uh, you know, I suppose ultimately it's a win for UK businesses. Yeah, I'd like to think so. I mean, ultimately, we need a lot more competition for businesses out there in the market. I think people benefit from there being more competition and a true sort of customer obsession around helping people to be successful. Agreed. So um, when do you guys go live? So uh, we are looking to go live in May. Um, we are just finalizing the migration of our core banking from... Uh, Lloyd's to a brand new platform um, early in Q2. So just a little bit of um, and then the words uh, you're confidence right? around the technical resource to yeah, get this all totally finished off. But yeah, we, we're sort of pretty comfortable we'll get there by May. Super exciting. And where can people find out more? Hopefully a bit of uh, press out there around this if you want to know about the marketplace itself. Uh, it will go live and you'll be able to see it uh, yourself. F funding options um, are live already with their marketplace if people want to go look at that. Uh, and um, hey, I'm always happy to chat on, on Twitter or LinkedIn, so uh, feel free to message me. So you've already led into my next question. Where can people find out more about you, Richard? So on Twitter, at uh, RHB underscore Davies uh, and LinkedIn, it's, it's Richard Davies. So feel free to DM me, DM me if you want to know more. Richard, thank you so much for coming on Fintech Insider News. Thank you. Cool. Great to hear from Richard there. So we're going to move on to our next story, which concerns Monzo and Yolt. Uh, so this story was on AltFi, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Emily J. Nickel. Uh, Monzo integrates with ING-backed app Yolt. Um, so Monzo have surpassed 500,000 customers 
last week integrates with Yolt this week. Um, we were saying earlier we could speculate about this, but seeing as we have Leah, maybe we should throw straight to you to actually tell us more about this one. Yeah, no, it's exciting. I think we've had a spell uh, where we've been busy migrating customers from our prepay program to our current account program. And the 500,000 is actually current account only, not across the two, which is really exciting. And it's really exciting now to be working actually on the product and bringing new things to it. So, yeah, we opened up an API, getting ready for when banks are forced to open them up uh, later later this year, maybe. Um, <laughs> we'll see. And you're also the, the first company to to use it so it's really exciting for us we've got about 1500 people i think on at the moment cool well the, the story says that there there was 1500 requests for this integration so that would match up and also clearly your, your customers are pretty happy with this integration it's really interesting that ing yeah I, I guess they're not ing true but like yolt you know like a big bank is the first person who are really sort of picking up the that integration that's fascinating really and i guess the congratulations on the 500,000 as well because that's a you know i always kind of look at first direct took you know it wasn't uh, so 1989 until sort of really re- recently to get 1.4 1.5 million customers so the fact that you guys have done uh, 500,000 since 2015 is just kind of ridiculous so uh, well done for that one well done thanks very much so while we're on topic of Monzo we were also discussing on Fintech Insider News and in the office generally um, about Monzo's annual update on its diversity and inclusion um, so a few key facts from that um, there's now 36% women at Monzo compared to 23% in 2017 the main uh, point on this was that a uh, quote in the article that says to help us address the imbalance we have now two technical recruiters in the team uh, which spend their time sourcing candidates from demographics that aren't already represented uh, in every job role could you tell us more about the kind of initiative behind that yeah of course i think if anyone happens to have read the thread on the forum that followed the the post uh, a very contentious point mm, around diversity quite is <laughs> um, quotas, and that's something that we definitely don't believe in. We hire people for them, the merit, their merit, and their merit only. Um, but I think it's really important in groups of people that are typically not well represented. You do everything you can to make sure you're getting a balanced view at the top of the funnel, and so that's where we're focusing our our efforts. So we have Ella and Chris are our two technical recruiters. They run the hiring process, but they also spend a large proportion of their time sourcing and going out looking for groups of people that we don't have well represented at Monzo yet. And I think it's clear from the figures in the in the blog post, we're not representative of the population as a whole. We're not where we should be, and we've got a lot of work to do. Um, so it's really exciting to be spending some time like dedicated to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've done the due diligence to find out where you are at compared with what the, the kind of uh, gen pop is to try and... Um, it's the first step in the process. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so as Simon said on the show last week, I think to me, this is how you do diversity updates. So I just love the transparency. It's it's not necessarily just a great news story, but I just I just love how, how transparent Monzo is uh, when it comes to these, these diversity updates. Uh, I have to say that I do look forward to the day when we no longer have to do or have to publish diversity updates because it is no longer a thing. Uh, so we no longer have to address the diversity issue in tech. Absolutely. And that's something to aim for 100%. I guess the the only, like, I love the graphs. The, the bit that I was confused about and had to Google, if I'm honest with you, and I don't even know how you classified it, was sexual orientation. Like, I'm not sure how you 
and I'm not going to put you on the spot to, to uh, like assess this, but um, so 27% were in LGBQA. And I had to Google that because I was like, what's the QA on the end of that thing? So uh, does, do you guys know? Because you you've can, got you, Urban Dictionary you up, can guess so. some. You can guess some of those. But lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer and or questioning asexual and or straight ally. So I was like, wow, that's quite broad ranging. But like how that was actually classified as 20%, 27% of the employees would be interesting because it's not the type of thing that people would just sort of like, I'm not sure there's enough boxes on a, you know, that's like other other than, you know, the the sort of uh, the, the two or three that people would kind of put down. But um, thank you very much, Urban Dictionary, if any of you guys are listening for sort of pointing me towards exactly what that actually meant. So well done. I think you only need one tick, tick box. I think that's kind of the point, right? Well, yeah, but I, but I guess how does, like, because I said, I was saying in the office earlier on, is like, surely as an employer, it's difficult to then basically even ask that question as a, so, and you don't want to make an assumption as in, a, again, in terms of, you know, like it doesn't, it just, it's a very difficult conversation to have from employer to employees to a certain degree. So it's an anonymous survey. So people are like in no way will reflect on an individual. And I hope people feel comfortable answering it it certainly seems to be the case mm. uh, i think i love the questioning category that was the one that i was like most fascinated about by really because like if you're questioning your sexuality i think that's such an interesting statement that somebody would like when i was at lloyd's banking group or aviva type thing it's not the type of relationship i would want would want to be having with my uh with my employer in terms of like that it just seems like a bridge too far for a for a company to be talking to but it's interesting that if you guys are in a situation where you can have that type of dialogue with your with the people who work at your company that's a whole different kettle of fish isn't it yeah and I think that is where we are I think we do really well in some aspects of diversity I actually think that's one where we're we're doing relatively well there's a very strong vocal group of people who create I think an incredible environment for people who feel less comfortable being vocal about it themselves but they can see that it's very welcome Um, and that's fantastic Uh, we're actually uh, going down to Pride Festival this year and getting a float there. That's driven by the community within within Monzo, um, yes. which is really exciting. I'm not sure that's something I'm meant to say or not, but <laughs> it's happening and it's exciting. That's the weirdest exclusive we've ever had. Like a band going to Pride and having a, a float, like you must be the only ones doing it. Like that's really exciting. I have no idea. Not, but it, now that you said it. <laughs> now you said but it. it. It's really driven by like it's not something Monzo is driving. Well, like when you say Monzo, it's not like there are people sat in an executive committee being like, oh, what should we do about diversity? This sounds like a good thing. It's like these groups of people are naturally forming together and like being like, how can we make sure that Monzo is an inclusive place for everybody who goes this way? And that's, that's fantastic. You know, it's nice that people are kind of were, had the freedom to sort of share that kind of personal information. Like, that you don't have to give away about yourself at all is the point I'm trying to make. Like you don't have to share that information, but people felt comfortable, felt comfortable enough to yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah. If nothing else, we learned that I'm a sucker for a sexy graph. And I think that's the main <laughs> thing that we can all take away from this. David likes graphics. Um, okay, on to the next story. Uh, Revolut's disposable cards. So um, again, on Altvi, submitted to FinTech Insider News by Emily J. Nicole. Uh, Revolut this week have launched disposable virtual cards. Um these are only available to its premium service users and the aim of them is to protect themselves against online card fraud. Um, 
This will protect them from inconvenience like chargebacks from one-off purchases uh, and preventing fraudsters from tracking bank account information. Hmm. I, I think this is really interesting. Like this type of technology has been um, around for a while. Um, you know, the sort of this is pretty much the uh, technology that's predicated around things like Apple Pay, really, in terms of obfuscation of data and being able to have a an account that link, links to an account in order to sort of make payments. You know, it's a great thing to be moving forwards. But I was quite impressed with this when MasterCard were doing it through Orbiscom in like 20. Uh, 2006 type thing so it's good that we're starting to see it in sort of mainstream um, I say mainstream obviously Revolut um, not a high street bank but Revolut doing this type of stuff so um, but yeah it's good to see yeah I think it's something that I think we know that MasterCard did a while ago but again it's you know what the challenger banks have been great at or challenger brands depends if you classify the banks or not banks um, have been great at um, has been sort of promoting and actually making the customer story around, hey, this is why you should use it. And it's actually been there for ages. I mean, what Monzo, I'm sorry, Revolut was originally built on was was MasterCard. It's um, the jumper, isn't it? Yeah. The, Mon- the Monzo <laughs> jumper right, is just... It's right there. I can't stop looking. Um, yeah. And, and, and again, it, it, but what, what happened was, you know, great brand, took it to market, understood the cu- customer need and identified it. So, I mean, I think, you know, that's, I guess, what this story is, is, challenger brand does it again yeah i I like i remember seeing this type of thing built into like an um you know a a browser-based application where you'd press a button and it'd create a a unique card number that you could spend in like put it in amazon and then if there was a problem you and and i think this is the you know the amount of people we see um you know signing up for something like fintech inside news but actually using a fin at something something at something something dot com because they're using um you know uh, a, a gmail or an email account that actually will be single usage so that i think people are starting to get used to this type of thing really because it it really it helps traceability around when there's a problem you know yeah and, and they've been really transparent in their communications uh talking about how online card fraud is on the rise um, there was a stat on their blog post that says increased by 9% uh, between 2015 and 16, which cost a total of 1.8 billion euros um, as a result. So they're being very um, open with these kind of stats and saying what they're going to do about it. Um, apparently, the UK and France alone contributed to 73% of that 1.8 billion. So like, it's kind of cool that they're kicking this out in the UK. I thought they did an excellent job of describing the risk as well to customers so actually saying you know people can put things between you and your merchant when you're paying online and take your card details take your card number and then they just use that off uh use that in on websites um and it yeah i I think it's a really really great thing one thing that irks me a little bit is that it's for premium customers only like if you've done the work and you think it's going to benefit people i feel like it should be available to everybody you shouldn't need to pay for it but On the other hand, uh, they're doing much better with their unit economics and making revenue than Monzo. So. It's only five payments a day. You can't use it for subscription services or any other type of recurring payments. Um, so there's only... Which yeah. would be the major use case, right? If it's recur- recurring, if it's a big one-off thing, like you're more likely to be sort of monitoring that type of stuff to a certain degree, aren't you? But no, I, I completely agree with you about the premium thing, though. It feels like it's a, this, if it's a fraud isn't something that only occurs if you're wealthy, right? 
I liked the idea so that we had a there was a statement here from the Revolut uh, CTO so this was uh, a bit of a sort of a pontification into the future about uh, apparently it's going to take 800 years before we start to run out of 16 digit card numbers to use um, so therefore disposable virtual cards is very sustainable long term um, if we're still using yeah. 16 digit numbers in 800 years to yeah. Been some great medical advances, David. So we really need to start thinking about this. It's true. Like sci-fi lied to us if we're still using plastic cards at that point. He's in it for the long haul, 800 years. Yes, yeah. Big game there. I do wonder what's next for Revolution. I mean, I saw Nikolai on stage at the Innovate Finance Global Summit and uh, I think he announced about 57 new initiatives that are going to launch in the next couple of weeks. Um, I think, I mean, I think it's super cool what they're doing, but I just wonder what's, what's next for the guys. They have shipped a lot of them, to be fair. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's the thing. I think, and I think generally about this in, in this space for, um, for challenger banks generally, though, it's like just the amount of stuff that's happening. Like people, customers are not used to these products changing so frequently, but with the likes of, you know, Monzo and Starling and Revolut just like tearing it up now in terms of the stuff that's going to customers, I, I just feel it's a, it's setting a very different level of expectations in terms of what's happening. You know, it's almost like, you know, you evolve a product when it's alive. It's weird, you know? Regular releases. I know. It's a thing, isn't it? You know? So earlier today, I caught up with the Revolut CTO, Vlad Yatsenko, to tell us more about this. Um, so let's hear from him now. So welcome to Fintech Insider. I'm Laura Watkins, and today I'm joined by Vlad Yatsenko, CTO of Revolut. Welcome to the show. Hello. Happy to be on your show. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So today we're here to talk about your latest announcement uh, concerning the launch of virtual disposable cards. Could you start off by telling us exactly what these are and, and how they can be used? As you may know, when shopping online, people sometimes uh, are exposed to fraud. Uh, which means their card details can be stored. But for instance, one example, the shop may store your card details and then later they may have security breach and your card details may be leaked. Someone else may use your details then to make transactions with your card. So by having the one-time card details, you are protected to do only this one transaction and your card details may not be used again. So how, how we uh, solve this with uh, our disposable cards, we simplified it. Uh, instead of you every time, let's say, uh, asking for another card, this another card is created for you automatically after each transaction. Every time you do a transaction, just look at your card uh, on your app. You see new details, you type those details. Once you're done transaction, those details disappear and are replaced with new details. Okay, and so the, the genuine customer use case here is anti-fraud, is increased security? Is that the uh, angle? Absolutely, it's, it's uh, anti-fraud. You're not exposed to this type of fraud anymore where your mm -hmm. card can be used later, saved and used later. How much of a problem is fraud at the moment and how much of a difference will this make in comparative with like a, a normal card that is not disposable? Yes, so in general, so this type of fraud is has existed since card start being accepted online since e-commerce uh, and it's been growing because this industry is, is, is still growing. Uh, I, I can't tell you the, the exact number I can remember, but even in UK alone, it's, it's probably in nine-digit number. It's, it's pretty big. There is a lot of sneaky ways to, to steal card details online. This uh, one way protects you from uh, majority of uh, online fraud. 
Okay. Is there anything you can do about making regular debit cards more secure so that you don't need the virtual disposable card? Or is this the sort of interim measure? If we're talking about online, uh, there is another way to do it is to make sure that every time you uh, make a transaction, you have to confirm it. For instance, uh, with, with the code that is sent to your app or something like this. But uh, why merchants often don't go for this kind of flow? You know, for instance, Amazon, they optimize your checkout flow. They want you to check out as fast as possible. And often they just disable such functionality, security measures. So they're, they're cutting corners to make you check out faster, essentially. Okay. And, and this helps you become more secure in, in situations such as that. Exactly. Okay. Are there any restrictions on what you can buy online using this card? Is there anything that you, you can't use a disposable card for? At the moment, we discourage people to use it for subscription-based services like Spotify, because this is the only way you can pay. It's just, you have to pay in, by saving your card details. So that wouldn't work in this case if the card is, yeah. Spotify would, would, would ban you from using their service eventually. Uh, that makes perfect sense. I guess if you're going to sign up to a subscription, you can't have a card that is renewed every five transactions. That's not going to work. Do all retailers accept them apart from the subscription services? Yeah, so th- there is no any uh, kind of, it, it depends on the retailer. The retailer will have their risk scoring for, for each transaction, their own uh, fraud systems. But generally, there is nothing uh, that prevents them to, to, to take payments with this card. It's any other release card. Perfect. Okay, sounds great. So where can people find out more if they're either they want to find out more information or they're already a Revolut customer or they're considering being one? Where should they go? I mean, it's very easy when they just order another virtual card on the app. If they are already a customer, they'll be given a choice. But this feature is currently available for premium users only. There is more information about it on our website as well. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Fintech Insider today. Thank you very much. Uh, great to hear from Vlad there. Uh, it will be interesting to see what happens next with Revolut. As we were just saying, uh, they're rolling out a million things all at the same time. Uh, so if you want to see how these virtual cards work, we have end-to-end journeys on Pulse, our competitor insights platform. Uh, just visit 11fspulse.com to find out more. Time for a quick break and we'll be back very shortly. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email at hello at 11FS.com. Now on with the show. Okay, so our next story concerns Santander and Ripple. Uh, it's from Business Insider, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Emeka Nuanu. Uh, Santander is set to launch an international money transfer app with Ripple. Uh, so at the International uh, Fintech Conference last week, Santander UK CEO Nathan Bostock uh, said, this spring, if no one beats us to it, we will be the first large retail bank to carry out cross-border payments at scale with blockchain technology. I imagine the key might be if no one beats us to it. There's like three caveats in that statement. 
Yeah, I guess there's a lot in that, really, isn't it? Um, you know, we've seen Santander, you know, I think when uh, Mariana Belinky was at the uh, Innoventures Fund, they did quite a few investments, <laughs> I think, into to Ripple, didn't they? Um, yes, so they have invested in Ripple in 2015 and 16. Apparently. Statistics, nicely done there. You back everything with facts. It's just not my style. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but um, yeah, so it's interesting to see that not only through an investment perspective, but they're actually implementing this now into the bank in the real world. So um, I'm, it'd be interesting, I'm sure, if Simon was here to ask about what they mean by blockchain technology and whether actually xrp is being used in this in particular instance or not to to move these things around I, when i sort of <laughs> dug around this one a little bit it didn't look like that was necessarily the case i think i believe that it's separate from xrp that simon can correct me if i'm wrong but uh, no doubt he will next i'm week. sure he will yeah but as the a blockchain based x current and ripple net products which are separate things i believe uh marcus treacher from ripple told us more about this on episode 35 blockchain insider it's <laughs> it is interesting though because i guess um, you know, for somebody like Santander that does have a global footprint, then you know this type of process to dramatically re- reduce the cost of actually doing this type of cross-border payment kind of makes total sense. Really, I, I think the we'll probably know a lot more when we know a lot more detail, though. That's true. Maybe we need to sort of see it to find out more potentially. Um, but yeah, it said that the consumer app was in partnership with Ripple was to be launched in Spain, Brazil, UK, and Poland. Um, this confused me a little bit, and maybe someone can answer my question. Um, are these the only countries that they can do cross-border payments in, or is that just where the app's going to be launched and you can do cross-border payments to any countries that aren't those four? I imagine it's the endpoints in which you can originate and end those cross-border payments. So, you know, there's no point, you know, like that idea of having like the only person having a mobile phone type thing, you can't ring anybody. You've got to at least do this in two countries to have a, yeah. a start, an origination and an endpoint to distribute funds. Makes sense. Yeah, I thought otherwise it might be slightly restrictive. It does seem rather rather (laughs) sensible to do it in multiple places. I imagine for those things as well, they're pretty heavy corridors of um, transfer of money, really. Yeah, Uh, and apparently the Ripple technology allows transfers to be settled within 24 hours, which is much quicker than traditional cross-border payments. Um, But I guess at the precise moment, that is all we know about this one until, as you say, until it happens. Yeah, the 24 hours thing seems long. Like the point of... Instantaneous. One day, I suppose it's, it's quicker than than what they've got now. The customer yeah. experience sounds pretty slick, though, because they say it, it only takes three clicks in forty seconds to make the end-to-end payment. Man, people are getting really obsessed about clicks in this episode, aren't they? It's uh, it's like a thing. They literally time someone. Like, do it. Go. Stop. Watch. Who uses laptops to? <laughs> click My mom would take forty yeah. minutes. I think. Yeah. How many taps? Oh, Jeff brought up his mom. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Clickbait can be a title for this. Mm. Thanks, Ed. Good, take that one. <laughs> okay, uh, so moving on um, to a slightly similar note. Uh, the next story concerns BBBA backed up startup Denizen. So this story comes from the ampproject.org. Uh, Denizen launches its first free global account. Um, and this is a fintech that uh, comes from the sort of BBVA incubator, uh, which has claimed that it's cl- created a global banking platform that allows customers to receive money in one country and pay out in another immediately. Um not in 24 hours. Yeah, then, no. quite. So it's much quicker than the whole Ripple Santander thing that we were just talking about. Turns out blockchain's like not that important, Simon, just saying, because I know you're going to be listening to this. So it's really interesting, though, like the idea of a uh, fee free global account. You know, really, there's no reason why big banks shouldn't be going super global for this type of stuff anyway, really. It's interesting that they've kind of actually had to partner up with. 
um, or a, a startup that they're backed to do this type of thing. There's, there's sort of very little detail about the technology that's in place here. But given BBVA operates in pretty much most of these countries anyway, then, you know, what stopped them doing this on their own? So one of the things I like about the story is that it was created in-house by the old incubator. So I just love to see these big banks you know, doing some pretty cool, innovative stuff and doing it themselves. So we just have to sort of believe them on this one for now. That that that's it. It works. I guess. Like, yeah. Is it is it live or is it coming? It sounds great. That, it does sound wonderful, doesn't it? Like a borderless banking setup. I guess to a certain degree, the adherence to different geographical regulatory systems is going to be an interesting one. But given that they operate in all of these things already and they've got a license in pretty much all of these countries to operate. I guess I'm, I wonder how much of this is down to passporting to a certain degree across most of the European countries. If you've if you've done your checks on that customer and you're the global operator, then surely that's on a, in a not with current systems, but with a new system, then that's completely feasible. Yeah, but it says they're licensed as a payments company, not a bank, and they will offer borderless accounts through partnerships with BBVA and other banks in countries where BBVA is not licensed. Hmm. Interesting. So potentially an opportunity there for countries where BBVA doesn't operate, but actually they would want to be in a situation where they could make payments too, right? Yeah, I'm just interested to see how they're going to compete with the other likes of TransferWise. Obviously, TransferWise launched their own uh, borderless accounts as well, although you have to pay a fee, and in this case, you don't have to pay a fee. I'm always for not paying a fee if I have the choice between the two. So uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see where customers go. Yeah, no fees are definitely better than fees. Uh, so in another story about moving money, Amex wants to have its cake and maybe eat it too. So the story is from TechCrunch, submitted to uh, Fintech Insider News by Barb McLean. Uh, American Express quietly acquired fintech startup Cake for $13.3 million. Uh, so my question on this one is, I'm not sure why it's making the news now, because the final price of this $13.3 million was agreed in October last year and the deal's gone through, so... I think it's only gone public now, but it was finalised at the end of last year. Well, I, I guess on the basis it's an unknown source to TechCrunch. Like at some point somebody decided to kind of yeah, publicise this in some way, a shape or form type thing. So I don't think this is necessarily Amex coming out and go, we did a thing, it's yeah. awesome. Um, but I, like, I'm super interested that I've literally never heard of this company. Yeah, it's, it's also interesting with someone, so Amex, obviously we all know who Amex is and someone who has been very quiet in this whole new digital banking world at the same time as we've had PST2 open banking come in where a lot of what they're, predi- they're predicated their business model is on is is kind of going away so what what their new solution is you know POS at, at this time when actually a lot of people that are looking at PISP so the new what open banking does to POS and what the merchant acquiring business is in the future you know is really up for grabs you know everyone in that value chain right the way f- to Oracle who are supplying a lot of the the back end systems are having to question what their position is in this new world um so i think an acquisition or a move into this this space is is you know we don't know the ins and outs of what they're trying to achieve together but you know they need to be doing something i think everyone knows that the one thing you can't do is nothing. So I, I'm, a, I'm kind of glad to see that Amex has actually done a thing. Amex is hungry for fintech, as Simon said. Yeah, I just like the idea of cake, really. But um, As a brand name, it's great, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. My, my favorite bit about this story was the new job title for one of the cake founders. So 
They went from being a cake founder to the vice president of global dining platform solutions. That's the difference between a startup and a corporate right there, right? And that's actually a graduate job. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cool, let's move on. So we're actually making the leap from cake to coffee next. Uh, So the next story is from marketwatch.com, submitted to Fintech Insider News by Jim Brune. I think that's how you say it, but if it isn't, apologies. Uh, Square is offering some customers... I've I've said... Brunei forever so like oh maybe yeah it's Brunei. i know that sounds Let's way more fancy right. doesn't it <laughs> um but interestingly that's the guy who started finnovate genuinely that is which is kind of cool right well now i feel bad if i butchered his name i know it's important <laughs> dude so um so square is offering some customers uh one dollar off coffee purchases um for those who use their square cash cards as and this is supposedly a move to attract millennials um Presumably millennials are not the only group that drink coffee, Um, but yeah, they get a dollar off every coffee if they use their Square cash card, Um, and and there's all kind of uh, technicalities. You must spend at least uh, $1.50 on your coffee to get the $1 off discount, and you can't use it more than 10 times a day, but maybe you shouldn't be having more than 10 coffees in a day anyway. Um, (laughs) Coffee is, other than water, the most universally drunk drink in the world. So when you start your day, I think you share that with two billion other people that start the day with coffee. So there's a fun fact, and that's clearly what Square have gone for here. (laughs) Obviously. That was a fun fact right there. (laughs) And this fun fact is sponsored by... No, I'm joking. It is a really interesting one. I feel like this is a... How can we entice people just to do a thing for a little while and then hope it catches on? It's kind of like Apple Pay in the UK did... You got free travel on a tuesday or something didn't you if you used apple pay i'm hoping somebody's gonna bail me out of this one nobody is fine <laughs> and on that basis it's fact so um what's <laughs> yeah. um, so what's the so it's sort of like it's to increase usage yeah. in the hope that it becomes habit exactly essentially if, if they get you into it and then you realize how easy it is mm-hmm. then when they stop sort of bribing you to use it then you'll use it anyway I'm always a bit dubious of people who pay you to use their product. I think you should build a product that people want to use and the experience is good enough in itself that... You're crazy. (laughs) You... You can do that or you can pay. That's that's (laughs) not true. I'd like £150 to switch current accounts. That's what I'd like. Um, No, I agree with you. I love it when people offer £150 to switch current accounts and every time I switch, but (laughs) not for long. Is it significant that they're trying to target millennials or attract millennials, as this article suggests? I I don't think they're just attracting millennials. Um, I mean, obviously, they launched their their Bitcoin solution as well uh, fairly recently, uh, which will target more of a millennial generation, I think. But uh, personally, I don't think they're just looking at millennials. They referred to a research report as well, which said that if 5% of millennials started uh, using cash cards to uh, to buy food away from home, um, Square could generate 100 million US dollar in annual fee revenue with transaction costs being close to zero. But I agree with with you know, with David and Leah. I think this is more about how can we get uh, customers more engaged uh, on on our Square Cash platform. I think it's a widely known fact that only millennials drink coffee, so um, makes total sense, right? And all millennials. Yeah. No, we only drink organic, slow roast <laughs> with soya milk. Well, I should like really lean in here. All right. So staying with the millennial target market for the next story, 
from Finextra, submitted again to Fintech Insider News by Bar McLean. Savings chatbot Plum introduces ethical investment tool. So users of Plum can now pick uh, one of three advanced uh, funds, ethical, emerging markets and tech, or one of the traditional funds, which fall under the headings of conservative balanced or growth um, and apparently they've added these new options in to, to kind of coincide with this millennial heavy user base who are interested in tech and apparently according to surveys that they've done want their investments to match their kind of social values um, what do you think of this one again i'm not sure it's necessarily purely a millennial thing if i'm honest with you that people want to ethically sort of invest in some of the stuff that's actually going through but i think that's I- maybe just a savvy headline because most of plum's user base are Mostly in the millennial market. I imagine, yeah. But I guess conversations with Victor, if we, uh, the CEO over at Plum that we've had before, is is you know they're they're aiming a much broader audience than than just the sort of millennial market. But um, it's an interesting one, right? I, I can imagine a lot of people will want to do that. It's going to be fascinating to see if what people say that they will do. Because if anybody goes, hey, would you want like to invest ethically rather than getting a really good return? Most people will go, yeah, I don't want to invest ethically. Don't get like, you know, little children making shoes type thing. But if it means the difference between 15% return and like 3% return, then I wonder if like the metal really sort of uh, is tested when they actually have to make those investments, you know? I suppose it's questions, what are the ethics behind the ethical one, right? Because actually is, is Google ethical? Is Facebook ethical anymore? You know, who's ethical, who's not ethical? Is green ethical? What type of green are you talking about? Um, so again, it's, uh, I think it's, a you know, it's an everyone thing. I think everyone has their ethics, but everyone has different ethics. It did sound a little bit like it was like, would you like ethical emerging markets tech or what's in the box? <laughs> like it, it did seem like it was going to get to one of those things about, you know, a, a bizarre investment opportunity that you, and I don't know why that goes in my mind really, but. Or you could play bingo. It does feel like I, <laughs> and that's how I see investment, predominantly gambling. Well, like what's in the box sounds a bit like deal or no deal, doesn't it? Exactly. And <laughs> given Noel Edmonds had featured so heavily on the show for like uh, for at least sort of uh, three weeks out of the last 10, then we should probably move on. That's a good point. I didn't mean to accidentally shout him out again. <laughs> we know he listens. <laughs> okay, so moving on to our and finally story, which uh, of course comes from the Daily Mail. Uh, Submit to Fintech Insider News by Ali Patterson, who in turn said that it was sent to him by his mom, um, which is... <laughs> um, Hat trick of mums getting yeah, shout outs yeah. this week. Uh, it's actually a video. Um, the headline is Bizarre Moment Australian Man Repeatedly Punches an ATM in Anger. Uh, so this is is that that bizarre? Well, uh, well, the headline says it is, but according to the story, like. <laughs> I don't know if you use an ATM, sometimes they can be infuriating. Well, you say that. So the story has emerged showing a man repeatedly punching an ATM uh, machine swearing at it etc um uploaded to instagram but the response to the footage and this is my favorite part uh has been mixed according to daily mail in in air quotes uh but most were supportive of the man so to your point ed i think everyone's frustrated with atms i think the challenge with this is like some of the slander that he used but you know yeah yeah i mean he, he so I'm not going to support that. I'm just saying. No, people were not yeah. supportive of the the kind of profanities that he was using. But the fact that he was like physically assaulting an ATM, people yeah. seemed to get pied. <laughs> this is weird, isn't it? <laughs> like, 
It's just a bizarre occurrence that somebody's basically trying to beat up a ATM system from Commonwealth Bank of Australia, but like... Um, I wonder if it either just swallowed his card or like he didn't have the funds he thought he did. I okay. guess, but an inanimate object trying to physically... Like, what was he trying to achieve here to a certain degree? I but, know, is he um, hoping if he hit it hard enough, like money would come out like in a vending machine or something? Can we get this guy on the podcast next week? I'll give it a go. I'm not sure we can identify him purely from that, but um, yeah, we'll see what we can do. There's a bigger chance of me getting that guy than will I am, I guess, at this stage. So we'll, um, so we'll see where we're going. <laughs> um, and on that note, that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, let's start with you, Ed. Just go to thisisbud.com. That's all you need to know about me. Perfect. Leah? Now I feel like I should say just go to monzo.com. There's not a lot about me on there. Feel free to follow me on Twitter, Leah Temple Woman. Templeman was taken. (laughs) Jeff? Uh, Jeff at 11vest.com or follow me on Twitter at Jeff Tyson. That's T-I-J-S-E-N. You, David? Uh, at David Breer on Twitter. Uh, and as for me, you can find me at Luella172 on Twitter and don't ask why, or Laura at 11fs.com. And as always, if you like what you've heard this week, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter uh, or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Um, and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.